Hello, I'm Oshan, and welcome to the Music Mind podcast. Ever since the 2008 financial crash, one thing that has really not recovered is faith in economists, or even economics at large. The theoretical foundation of the current paradigm, a body of work known as neoclassical economics, took a huge hit, and yet not all that much changed. The economist Milton Friedman, one of the main economists in that movement, once wrote, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. And so one thing that the crash taught us was that alternatives to neoclassical economics simply weren't developed enough to rise to the occasion uh, when the crash created both a crisis and an opportunity. Today, I'm joined by the evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson, who is doing fascinating interdisciplinary work to change that. David is a distinguished professor of biological science and anthropology at Binghamton University. He is the co-founder of a number of organizations that apply evolutionary theory to social questions, including the Evolution Institute and Pro-Social World. Uh, David, along with colleagues, proposed a theory called multi-level selection, which advocates the importance of group selection and cooperation in evolution in contrast to the selfish gene individualism and kind of exclusively competitive framework uh, that was crystallized in Richard Dawkins' idea of, of selfish gene theory. Uh, David also wrote uh, Atlas Hugged, which is a wonderful fictional retort, uh, kind of sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, again taking on the centrality of individualism and making the case for the role that cooperation plays in successful evolution. But today, David and I are talking about a paper that he recently co-authored, along with Dennis Snower, who's a, a big-time economist at the Keele Institute. The paper is titled, Rethinking the Theoretical Foundations of Economics. And it begins sketching a wholesale alternative to neoclassical economics. They call it the multi-level paradigm. And it's built on the foundation of David's multi-level selection theory. It uses the, the importance of cooperative groups in evolution as opposed to that atomized individualism to kind of rebuild the, the edifice of economic theory. The paper is a huge undertaking. The first one clocks in at 70 pages, and it's only part one of what will be a three-part series sketching out their theory. And, and while there already exists a number of critiques of neoclassical economics and also proposed alternatives, what makes this paper so interesting to me is grounding it all the way down in biology and then scaling it up via evolutionary principles to the economy, right? Their theory isn't just some armchair alternative. It's built on patterns that have been tested and tried by evolution for millennia. As always, uh, thank you to everyone who shares the show on social media, helps it reach new audiences or leaves reviews on Apple podcasts. Thank you especially to the Patreon supporters who make this possible uh, if you find value in the show and have the means, you can become a supporter by giving as little as $2 a month, the stability of which helps me invest in research, audio quality, and allocating more time to the project. Uh, you can find all of that at patreon.com slash or there's a link on the show page, which you'll find at musingmind.org slash podcast. All right, here's my conversation with David Sloan Wilson. So, David Sloan Wilson, welcome to the Music Mind podcast, and thanks so much for being here. 
Thanks to you. So let's start with the obvious question, which is you are a highly accomplished evolutionary biologist, but for uh, a number of years now, almost a decade, it seems, you've been publishing papers with economists and, and about economics. And just this past year, you released the first installment of a three-part series with Dennis Snower, uh, an economist, which proposes a new paradigm for economics, which you call the multi-level paradigm. Now, it, it's clear from your work that you're not one to remain siloed within a kind of disciplinary boundary. Um, you've approached the study of evolution in a very interdisciplinary way. But what brought you to get so involved with economics, the so-called dismal science? Well, I guess it's proceeded in a number of stages. First, uh, began as a biologist, uh, but of course, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. So um, within biology, evolution provides a passport to the study of all subjects. Uh, at that time, uh, it was confined to genetic evolution and had little to say about human cultural evolution, but that's now changed, and I was part of that expansion. So within evolutionary biology, I'm known, uh, I've made two contributions. One is the, the evolution of altruism. And so the fundamental problem of social life is, is how does altruism and all forms of prosociality evolve? And then, and then the expansion of evolutionary science to include all things human. And when you put those together, then all of a sudden you're studying human cooperative groupings of all sorts, religion. So I published a book in 2002, Darwin's Cathedral, Religion from an Evolutionary Perspective, and then somewhat later, Economics. So there's a kind of a very brief uh, explanation as to how a humble biologist who started out studying zooplankton ended up <laughs> rethinking the theoretical foundation of economics. <laughs> mm, that's really interesting. So biology was kind of the ground zero for your interest in evolutionary science. And ever since you've been taking the perspective that evolutionary science provides kind of beyond biology into different domains, and especially into kind of human cultural domains where it can help make sense of things. I mean, so much of your work seems to be about advocating that evolutionary principles apply in cultural spheres just as much as genetic. Well, one of my passions is to actually explain the meaning of nothing and nothing about X makes sense except in the light of evolution. And that first manifesting itself for X equals biology, and only now manifesting itself for X equals all things human. The anchor for our conversation today will be this paper on, on rethinking the theoretical foundations of economics. Um, and in this, you essentially swap out Newtonian physics as the basis for economic theory, and you swap in evolutionary science and elaborate what happens to economics when you do that. But before getting into that, I want to situate this in, in, all in a broader context. And I think that one of the reasons that talking about an alternative economic paradigm is so popular at the moment is because there is this disillusionment that, that seems to be reaching something of a critical mass. I don't think that we have sufficient coherence around either what the economy is for, what it is supposed to do, and how we track whether it's achieving those goals. And it, it's pretty old news at this point to say that you know GDP alone is a poor proxy for a desirable economic system. You know, mere growth without attention paid to what kind or in what direction and what sectors or at what cost um, doesn't give a sufficient kind of normative compass for for designing a successful economy. And one of the things that I really appreciated about your paper. Um, especially relative to many of kind of the other alternatives floating around, 
is that I think you give a really pragmatic idea of what the economy should do, at least at, at the level of principles, and how we might direct the system's evolution or growth to achieve that normative direction. And this has a lot to do with, with specific ideas that will elaborate, I think, throughout the conversation, functional organization, uh, growing the boundaries of units of selection, well-being. But I, I want to start at the outset, maybe with a bird's eye view, and ask you, from the perspective of evolutionary science, what is the economy for? What should it do? And, and what does economic progress look like? Yeah, well, I have uh, my, co- my co-author, Dennis Snower, to... Um thank for much of uh, that. And just to introduce him, he is um, a very highly regarded economist. He was president of the Kiel Institute for World Economics. That's the institute in Germany that helps to organize the G20 and the T20 and the G7 summit meetings. And so this is very much world-scale economic. Um, he's, he's, he's a consummate economic insider, and that provides real, an yeah, I mean, otherwise I'd just be some, yet another um, barbarian, you know, outside the, um, outside the gate. And so when you come at it from the outside, then it's clear that an economic system is something which is a whole system. And of course, and is nested within a, a, a larger social system, which in turn is nested within a, a natural system. And that's like, probably the most natural way to think about an economic system, but it's not the orthodox view. Uh, the orthodox view, I'll turn that back to you because I know that you have orthodox economic training. And, and, um, and so, uh, uh, you know, why is it that orthodox economics is not like that? Yeah, maybe, maybe before wrestling with the question of why neoclassical economics struggles to see that interrelation between society, culture, the environment, and economic processes, I think we should establish a a very minimal but working idea of what it is. So just briefly, uh, neoclassical economics, otherwise known as orthodox or mainstream or traditional, uh, we can think of it as the set of concepts and theories that for roughly the past hundred years you would find in undergraduate and graduate textbooks, and the group of claims that peer-reviewed studies in economics treat as consensus. And I don't want to dwell too much on what those theories or concepts are, because there's a lot of that out there. Um, I think the best source on this is Eric Beinhocker's book, The Origin of Wealth. Right. But the gist of it is that neoclassical emerged as an attempt to create um, something that, that you wrote a lot about, actually, and we'll come back to, a physics of social science. And, and this is literal. There was a, a failing economist by the name of Leon Walras in the late 1800s. And while he was kind of flunking out of his career as an, as an academic economist and reconsidering his life, uh, he was reading a physics textbook. And in it, he saw the equation for equilibrium systems. And that kind of served as this spark where he realized that he could borrow this equilibrium equation and build on it to devise a kind of mathematically precise form of economics that could model and predict the economy. And ever since then, you know, we've kind of, there's been new and improved theories in that same language of equations um, that have been added and refined to this body of work. And I want to focus on this because the foundation in physics equations is kind of the central component of that in your paper and this multi-level paradigm that you're proposing um, with Dennis, 
that the foundational switch is to abandon the physics equations at the heart of it all and instead replace them with the Darwinian triad of variation and selection and replication kind of as our basic understanding of how the economy evolves. Um, and also to note, implying that it evolves at all, right? Because using an equilibrium equation to model the economy implies that its natural state is to be at rest and innovation and dynamism are anomalies. Um, but anyway, so in, in your view, what does it mean to have a physics of social science and what does replacing that with Darwinian evolution bring to the table? Yeah, well, you can understand in the, in the 1800s why the allure of physics of social behavior would be so alluring, given you know, New- Newtonian physics and its ama- amazing ability to, to predict the orbits of the planets and, and things like that. And so the whole idea that you could build a mathematical system that was that predictive of the physical world please, let's do that for economics. And so it's easy to appreciate the allure of that, but it, it just turns out to be uh, just the um, wrong starting, uh, starting point. But when you, when you go down that road, what do you do? Well, you have to treat individual people as some kind of an atom. And, and, um, and, so, and how does this atom behave? And just there you get utility maximization and all the assumptions that are finally referred to as homo economicus is, mm-hmm. as, um, as forced upon you in order to build this mathematical edifice. And so many, uh, and also, you know, markets at equilibrium. If you look at the, the assumptions about both human nature and the social environment inhabited by uh, humans, so much of it is forced upon you in order to build a system of mathematical equations, and that has persisted to this day. So for the very same reason that Darwin's theory of evolution was like a hugely different paradigm than physics, physics gives you the periodic table. Evolution gives you all the diversity of endless forms most, <laughs> most, hmm. most beautiful. And so for the same reason that natural selection um, uh, stands apart from physics, this plays itself out... Um, Oshan in philosophy, and I know that you have a philosophy background, but up until about the 1970s, philosophy of science was essentially philosophy of physics. And physics was like supposed to be the gold standard of science that all other topic areas should be emulating. But about that time, a new breed of philosopher came around, including my colleague Elliot Sober, and they said, no, wait a minute, there's something about evolution, evolutionary science that's really different than physics, does not have to play by the same rules as physics, requires a different philosophy. And so then philosophy of biology emerged as something that was not like some kind of poor cousin to philosophy of physics. And so like being physics bound, as opposed to evolution oriented, plays itself out in more than one area. It plays itself out in economics, in philosophy, and complex system science, I think, has the same dynamic where developed mostly at first by physicists and the evolutionary implications of complex systems. This is something we can talk about is, is, is about as new for complex system science as it is for 
economics and the phrase complex adaptive systems and how we need to distinguish between two meanings of complex adaptive systems is part of this paper that we're talking about and something I'm eager to discuss during this conversation. Yeah, let, let's open that up a little bit because this distinction you make is, is so rich and I'm really surprised I haven't heard it before. And that's part of your point, I think, in, in trying to spread the good news is right. this distinction between um, CAS, complex adaptive systems, two and one. Um, and it, it's increasingly popular nowadays to throw complexity science at everything. We mentioned the field of complexity economics. Um, it has its own critique and alternative for neoclassical. Um, but you've introduced this distinction between, or at least popularized it, I don't know where it first comes from, uh, two kinds of complex systems. And this is important because it seems like from an evolutionary perspective, CAS1 systems are the goal. And this is where the system itself is adaptive. The system is the unit of selection. But from the existing paradigm of economics, neoclassical, what we have and what we design for, because these things are very interwoven, are CAS2 systems, where you have a system composed of individuals, um, each following their own respective adaptive strategies. So could you could you elaborate this a little bit? Give us a quick idea of what these two systems are and, and why that distinction is so important. Yeah, happy to. And, uh, and we really want to um, um, pay it proper attention. So I'm not going to try to uh, rush through it. So what I try to establish is that, first of all, economics and just about everything else needs to stand upon a foundation uh, that's provided by complex system science and evolutionary science, two bodies of knowledge. Then I say that the most general of those is complex system science, because, um, because of course, um, complex systems could, can be either physical complex systems or living complex systems. So that's the more general. However, living complex systems are such a special subset of all complex systems that they require their own theory. And that some of the things we need to know are specifically evolutionary, not to be had by general complex systems theory. They're, they require specifically evolutionary concepts. And the key phrase, complex adaptive systems, illustrates that. And I invite everyone listening to this to go to Wikipedia and uh, go to the entry on complex adaptive systems, and you will get a big, long list of them. And that list includes such things as traffic patterns, uh, the brain, warfare, uh, the immune system, the stock market, and um, uh, a bee colony. And, um, and those are all thoroughly mixed up. Well, the two meanings of complex adaptive system that we need to know about are the first one, a complex system that is adaptive as a system, as a system. Examples of that would be a single organism, the immune system, the brain, a bee colony. These are complex systems that are adaptive as a system. The second meaning is a complex system composed of agents following their respective adaptive strategies. Okay, a complex system composed of agents following their respective adaptive strategies. An example would be traffic patterns, warfare, the uh, point, the stock market was the other one that I that I mentioned. And the distinction is, of course, not made in that long list. They're thoroughly jumbled up. And why is the distinction so important? It's because every positive change effort is an attempt to create a CAS1 system, a system that is that is adaptive as a system. And every pathology 
that we're confronted with is a CAS2 system, a system composed of agents following their respective adaptive strategies, uh, very often at cross purposes with each other. And so the policy issue, the policy issue across all topic domains is how do we convert CAS2 systems into CAS1 systems Hmm. and general complex systems theory does not provide the answer because it's too general. If you look at the major concepts of general complex systems theory, such things as basins of attraction and systems at disequilibrium and and you know extreme interdependence and sensitive dependence on initial conditions and all of these things apply to both CAS1 and CAS2 systems. And and it's just not the case that CAS2 systems robustly self-organize into CAS1 systems. There must be a process of selection at the system level. Adaptation at any level requires a process of selection at that level and tends to be undermined by selection at lower levels. That's multi-level selection in a nutshell. It's a specifically evolutionary concept that's needed to explain how we get CAS1 systems. And all of this is new. It's new for complex systems theory. It's new for economics. It's new for any area in the social sciences, including such things as clinical psychology. So it has this tremendous, you know, nothing about X makes sense except in the light of, this is what we're talking about, and it is very little known. Would it, would it be going too far to paint as an example? I'm just thinking of this. If you have a, a normally functioning human body, this could be an example of a CAS1 system. The, the body on the whole is adaptive. But then when you get an instance of cancer, when you have a cell that is following its own self-interest, irrespective of, of the larger system's needs, the cancer undermines the conditions for that whole body to, to thrive. Would that be an example? That is definitely an example of multi-level selection. And so let's spend a little time on, on that, Ocean. I, 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 use, um, I use the game of Monopoly to get this across super fast. So if you think of playing the game of Monopoly, that's a process of competition among individuals within a single group. You're trying to beat out everybody, get all the real estate, drive everyone else bankrupt. And so what we have is we have a process of competition leading to an absence of cooperation. There's no context for cooperation in a game of Monopoly other than the losers teaming up to beat the current front runner so that they can compete among themselves. And so there's a social environment with very little scope for cooperation. Now imagine playing a Monopoly tournament in which the trophy goes to the team that collectively develops its real estate the fastest. Now you can see that there's still a process of competition but it's between groups, it's between groups, and then that selects for teamwork within the group. That's the only context. There's no point in beating your teammate anymore, Not, no, no, nothing to be gained. Everything favors functioning as a team to beat out other teams. And now that's good, but there's no context for between team cooperation, is there? Hmm. For that, we'd have to have some new la- layer of of selection among teams of of teams. And so so evolution is like that. Evolution, the, the the competition can take place at different scales. And when it's among individuals within a single social group, it selects for monopoly-like 
behavior, disruptive, self-serving behaviors. When selection is at the group level, then it favors teamwork at the scale of the groups. But that's just a form of collective selfishness as far as between group interactions are concerned. And so if you want to have higher levels of cooperation, you need higher levels of of selection. It's not hard to wrap your head head around it. And so, so against that background, we can take something like cancer and we can see that it's exactly the process of two-level selection in which the organism is the group and the cells are the agents within the group. Uh, Most of the cells are cooperative cells. That's why we function like an organism. And a cancer cell is basically a cheater. It's growing at the expense of the cooperative cells and it's proliferating without contributing to the economy of the body. And that is successful from an evolutionary perspective perspective from within group selection. Natural selection is all about the differential proliferation. And so cancer cells are perversely adaptive when it comes to selection within groups. Evolution has no foresight. So the fact that cancer cells are ultimately going to bring about their own demise is beside the point. We can say the same for our species, that if we managed to drive ourselves extinct, (laughs) then we would have evolved ourselves to extinction, just like a cancer uh, cancer, and the only reason that um, that uh, we're good at defending ourselves against cancer is because selection at the individual level uh, over hundreds of millions of years, selecting for individuals well defended against cancer, surviving and reproducing those that succumb to to uh, cancer, and so that logic of multi level selection is playing itself out for cancer, and then if we frame shift upward. Um, it plays itself out with the eternal struggle between basically disruptive self-serving behaviors and cooperative behaviors and in social groups. Yeah. And we should point out too, you, you write explicitly about this in the paper that a, a a quick reading of Adam Smith uh, of his, you know, the famous theory of the invisible hand is essentially the claim that if we maintain the correct market conditions, of the economy being a CAS2 system where everyone follows their own respective adaptive strategies or their own self-interest, what happens is the system uh, self-organizes naturally into the CAS1 system. What's best at the individual self-interest level harmonizes with what's best for the whole system. And your claim here is is that evolutionary science has flatly denied that and showed the opposite, that there is no uh, guaranteed evolution from one state to the other, that that has to be a managed process. And I, I think that's such a great point, and we'll dig into that. Yeah, let me maybe I can just uh, consolidate that right here, uh, Oshan, because um, the naive rendering of the invisible hand is that basically the lower level pursuit of self interest by individuals or corporations robustly benefits the common good. We could all basically do what we want, um, and uh, it'll self organize for the benefit of the whole. That's what's profoundly untrue. I mean, profoundly, deeply, besmirchingly untrue. Um, but yet, 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 there is a version of the invisible hand that's invisible, and it goes like this. Um, we must act in two capacities. Uh, first, as designers of whole systems. That's the opposite of the invisible hand. We must have the welfare of the whole system in mind to design that system. But the second capacity is to be participating within that system that we designed. And for that, you do not have to have the 
welfare of the whole system in mind. Our cells, for example, they don't have the welfare of the organism in mind. They're just responding to local circumstances. Mm. That's how they evolve. And if you look at a system that's been well-designed, a human system that's been well-designed, either inadvertently by natural selection or more consciously by, by human agency, in either case, if the whole system works well, take a traffic system, for example, in a city. If it's not designed, then it just doesn't function well at the whole level of the whole system. All, all the individuals making their separate driving decisions results in chaos at the, at the system level. Um, if you if you design the system, that's where we're operating in the first capacity. Well, you have to have the whole system in mind in order to design it. Where do you put the street lights? How do you time it? How do you do this and that? But once that's built, then drivers are just making their local decisions, aren't they? Mm, and yeah. so and they're they're led as if by an invisible hand. Well, the invisible hand was us acting in the first capacity. <laughs> that, <laughs> we realize it is our own hand. There's, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's the visible uh, hand, or it actually is an invisible hand when when it's all a product of blind cultural um, mm -hmm. evolution. So there's many things that work, and nobody invented them. Friedrich Hayek made that had that insight. Yeah, it's interesting too. There's a phrase in in the design world that you know the best design is invisible. It's transparent. You can't see it. Yeah, um, and so it's, it's the exact same kind of principle at play here. Um, one thing that I found really sharp about your critique of neoclassical was that you didn't stop at kind of ridiculing the assumptions. And this is important because um, I, I find that very often critiques that do kind of miss the point, right? A lot of the critiques out there will take the approach of explaining what the assumptions are, like perfect competition, complete information, the economy has an equilibrium system with no externalities, and then kind of you know, ridicule how far disconnected from reality these are, and then say, you know, aha, I have got you. Your assumptions don't actually match the real world, so neoclassical is debunked. And I've always found this a little premature because if you were to speak with a neoclassical economist, um, who by and large are kind, sweet, brilliant humans, they would agree that their assumptions are very unrealistic, that their models are, some might even say that they're wrong in terms of describing reality. But as you point out in the paper, the point of a model isn't exactly, it's not to be right, it's to be useful. There's that famous quote that goes, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And the neoclassical claim is that their models are, are exactly that, that they're useful, that in order to think about the best ways to navigate the real complex economy, these hyper-simplified models help us think it through to kind of understand core principles. And in the critique section of your paper, you kind of attack the grounds that its models are, are useful. And I wanted to ask you to expand on this. And one thing that I'll the, the last thing I'll add, which I thought was so brilliant, was a, a passage from the essay where you wrote, the standard portrayal of economic agents in neoclassical and behavioral economics is compatible with the American Psychological Association's definition of psychopathy right. as a synonym of antisocial personality disorder, which is a pattern of disregarding or violating the rights of others. A person with antisocial personality disorder may not conform to social norms, may repeatedly lie or deceive others, or may act impulsively. This implies that the first fundamental theorem of welfare economics identifies the conditions under which a population of psychopaths can satisfy each other's consumption demands efficiently through voluntary <laughs> exchange. Yeah. Since people with psychopathic personalities represent no more than 1% of the population, this is clearly <laughs> not a useful description of people's actual patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving. And then the final point you say, the important question, however, is whether the economist's portrayal of economic agents is a suitable simplification for explaining 
why people in market economies manage to satisfy consumers' demands without central coordination. So my understanding of of the multi-level paradigm, which draws on multi-level selection theory, is that rather than describing a population of antisocial psychopaths, the basic theory sees humans as fundamentally social and social groups as an important unit of analysis in the models we use to make sense of the world. So tell me a little bit more about this this movement from antisocial individuals to social creatures and groups. Well, you said a lot there that we need to unpack, Ocean, and we, we're still in good time here, so we don't have to, uh, to rush. Let's go back to this idea that, you know, all models are incorrect. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the classic paper there is by Milton Friedman in, what is it, 1953, his uh, Positive Economics paper, in which he concedes that the assumptions of neoclassical economics are ridiculous. But he says, nevertheless, people behave that way and firms behave that way. And he actually trots out an evolutionary argument. I've written a little paper on this that we can provide in your in your notes. And he says, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, trees act as if they're solving differential equations when they orient their leaves towards light, but they didn't, you know, that they're not really doing that. Um, a billiard, a pool player uh, acts as though he's solving differential equations when he makes a bank shot, but that's just by hours and hours of, of practice. And firms act, act as though they're um, maximizing their utility, uh, but that's just because the ones that didn't have gone extinct and Trumpeter's creative destruction is, has taken place. And so he's, he's actually relying on an evolutionary, very simplistic uh, evolutionary argument to explain why it is that the that the models of neoclassical economics can be correct despite having ridiculous assumptions. If you look at any other subject area, and it doesn't matter whether it's biology or the social sciences or even weather forecasting, what you do is in the first of all, models are much more humble. They're not the kind of Olympian model of neoclassical economics. You build models around very specific Topics we call this small world modeling in the paper. If I'm a biologist, I want to I want to know you know how does a fish select its food, and so I'm I'm going to build a model of optimal foraging theory. And before I get very far with it, because of all the simplifying assumptions I make, I better test that against reality real fast. Hmm. And so I do. That's an experiment takes place, and then that modifies the model. But there's an authentic dialectic between the model and the test, the model and the test. And that that iterates itself again and again and again. And that little model has to be, is only a suitable for a given context. And so if, if I switch the context, I have to switch the, there's a whole family of, of small world models that have to be developed. That's how it really takes place. And it's against that background that you can say that all models are wrong and so on and so forth, but only because of this First of all, small world modeling and a true dialectic between the, the, the modeling and the, and the empirical test. Weather forecasting is like that. And a social forecasting is like that. Some, a rapid dialectic between gathering data and testing it, gathering data and testing. So that's what's needed for economic modeling. And that the Olympian model is is a joke. And to say that, you know, all models are false and so therefore we can proceed in this way, it's a joke. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because this is something I wanted to get into, the way that you outline how the use of models and, and of math, actually, in evolutionary science suggests 
kind of a, a direction that economics can take it. Um, you made this really interesting point that the assumptions of neoclassical economics as they've come under fire um, remain rigid and inflexible precisely because they were first coded in equations as math. Um, in, in the paper, you wrote that you know, relaxing the assumptions is difficult or impossible because it makes the math difficult or impossible. This is the sense in which formal mathematical models become a straitjacket rather than an enabler of productive inquiry. And by contrast, you point out that with evolutionary science and Darwinian theory at its core, not only is it is it very simple, but it's linguistic, that the theory starts with words, not math. Yeah, that's right. And that, in fact, you know, it's actually interesting. There's kind of an, an inverse uh, relationship of how these two employ math. Neoclassical began with math and is now trying to break out of that straitjacket imposed by the equations, whereas evolutionary science began with words and only later developed kind of formal mathematical models. And as you just laid out, as a result, the math has been uh, maybe contained a little more, used in these specialized cases, kind of tested against empirical science to kind of keep things reined in. So do you think that this way that evolutionary, evolutionary science uses math, is this kind of a direction that economics can go? Totally. Totally. And uh, I think it brings us back to philosophy. If you go to uh, any definition of, of, of theory, uh, such as Oxford English Dictionary, it's, it gives its definition. And then as an example, it gives Darwin's theory of evolution. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the exemplar of the, of the theory that's proven to be so very powerful. And it is exactly as you said, it started out with words. Darwin didn't mathematically model and he didn't and he didn't need to. So basically, the evolutionary perspective provides a, a, an entirely different conception of theory. So, and it's the appropriate one. So that's part of what comes with this paradigm shift. Yeah. And, and so maybe this is a good point to get into one of the most important ideas, um, as I saw it, that, that we should really spend some time with to understand this, the kind of what happens to economics when you put evolution at the center. And, and this is this idea of functional organization. And, and you've touched on kind of uh, things adjacent to this. Um, this is the basic idea behind multi-level selection theory. And it, and it really helps us understand what progress is within this multi-level economic paradigm. In, in the paper, you wrote that progress, the advancement of individual and collective well-being, arises in the process of cultural selection in response to variation. We will argue that achieving higher levels of functional organization is a vital driver of progress. So let's start here. What is functional organization? I find myself wanting to give a little bit of historical background and talking, among other things, individualism, because it's said that, that, that basically what unites all schools of economics is that they're all forms of individualism. And, and very often individualism is modified with the term methodological methodological individualism. And it turns out to be a very diverse subject. Jeffrey Hodgson is a very distinguished scholar of the social sciences, economics, and evolution who's, uh, who's um, uh, written about this. But crudely, it is, the, it is the axiomatic statement that the individual person or the individual is some kind of fundamental unit of analysis and that all things social must be understood in terms of individual thought and uh, action. And so the individual is the functionally organized unit. Before individualism, there was functionalism. This is the tradition of Emile Durkheim and others, which treated society as the whole organisms. And of course, societies 
are made up of individuals, but you can't reduce society to individuals. Quite the contrary. Individuals function in the context of societies. Individuals consist of cells, but you can't reduce everything about individuals to the cells. So functionalism was this axiomatic belief that the society is is the unit of, of functional organization. And individualism is the axiomatic belief that the individual is the unit of functional organization. And what evolution, multi-level evolution tells us is actually there's no one level. We cannot be axiomatic about this. Um, functional organization can exist at, or, or not exist at multiple uh, levels. And so therefore, we need a theory that allows us to determine on a case-by-case basis, where is the functional organization? In a healthy organism, it's the organism. In a cancer-ridden organism, it's the cancer. And the organism is not functionally organized because it's cancer-ridden. A a well-functioning human society that's highly cooperative and well-protected against cheaters, well, the group is the unit of functional organization. When that's not the case, then it becomes a CAS2 system, merely a group of lower-level agents. They're functionally organized, but the sum of their parts is by no means functionally organized. And so being able to uh, explain the presence and absence of functional organization wherever it exists and doesn't exist is what multi-level selection provides. Mm. So the, the functional organization of a system would refer to whatever the relevant or proper uh, scale or unit of selection is for that system. Is that right? Well, I guess maybe uh, uh, to demystify it just a little bit, let's begin talking about human implements. Hmm. Uh, You know, what is a watch for? It's to tell time. Um, All the parts of the watch are coordinated for that uh, purpose. What's an automobile to drive from point A to point B. Uh, something is functionally organized when it when it exists to do something, unlike a mineral or the weather or the moon or, or uh, those things don't have a purpose. A snowflake does not have a purpose. Um, a human implement does. And so I think that that's deeply intuitive. We don't have to puzzle mm-hmm. too much about that. And then, of course, with organisms, a, um, um, a, a healthy organism is designed to survive and reproduce in its environment, and all of its parts contribute to that, to that uh, end. And so something is functionally organized when it is organized in order to accomplish something, either because it's a human-created implement or by a process of, of selection. Okay, so... In simpler terms than my last attempt at a summation, something that is functionally organized is just something that is or was designed to do something. It has a purpose. And the functional organization of a system is fragile, right? It can be broken. Again, kind of going back to the human body, a well-functioning body is a whole system that is designed to survive and reproduce in its environment where all the parts are playing a more or less cooperative role in supporting that goal. But that functional organization can be uh, decreased if you get something like cancer. And the body as a system is is almost fragmented, right? So that as a system that is functionally organized to achieve its goal, it's now smaller because 
a cancerous piece has been broken from the pack and is now, you know, on its own, a smaller functionally organized system that does not gel into or cohere with the whole. And so the body on the whole is now not a CAS one system where the whole system is functionally organized as a unit. Instead, it's moving towards becoming a CAS two system because it's now a collection of smaller systems, the cancer and the rest of the body uh, pursuing their own self-interests that can actually be at odds with each other. And so one way that I understand multi-level selection theory is rather than focusing exclusively on individuals, we can also look at how individuals become parts of larger functionally organized groups by means of cooperation and the role that being a part of these groups can play in giving rise to things like preferences and values and so on. Yeah, and in, in neoclassical economics, in the first place, it's said to be individualistic because it's basically it's based on a model of rational actors uh, maximizing their utilities. So, and then I'll leap right from there to I, what I think is the single most radical implication of multi-level selection theory is that it identifies uh, not the individual person, but the small, functionally oriented group as the fundamental unit. Evolution tells us that that individuals never lived alone. Throughout our history as a species, individuals never lived alone. They always lived in the context of small and for the most part, highly cooperative groups, even when those groups were warring with other groups. And so the very conception of uh, Homo economicus, that the individual is some kind of utility maximizer, maximizing a personal utility, is just so far away from actual humans who are built and designed by genetic evolution and, to a large extent, cultural evolution to, to function in the context of a cooperative, cooperative group. The starting point is so very, very different. Yeah, I really like, uh, I interviewed Julie Nelson, uh, an economist on the show a while back, Uh and the way she put this was that uh, neoclassical economics employs a mushroom man theory, which is that individuals simply pop up out of the ground fully formed, their preferences (laughs) shaped, you know, whereas, you know, it seems as if what actually happens is we emerge fundamentally from the social matrix, and and we can't ignore the, the role that that plays yeah, and that's true. So, I mean, I mean, to really absorb what you just said um, is paradigmatic, and and there's um, and so uh, there is such a difference. I think the reason that that critiques of neoclassical economics have failed, they haven't failed. I mean, they always score good points, um, but the reason they haven't cohered, and and they're kind of like satellites orbiting the mother planet. That's true for behavioral economics, by the way. One of the contributions of the evolutionary paradigm is that it really truly provides a different configuration of ideas that coheres and um, and provides a much more favorable background for the heterodox schools than a neoclassical economics. And the third part of my trilogy with with Dennis is going to make that um, is going to make that point. Yeah, I want to, I really want to dwell on this idea of achieving higher levels of functional organization. And the term functional organization, it's not flashy. Uh, Maybe it's a little obscure for folks uh, not familiar. 
certainly was for me. But it's actually, it's a really grandiose idea. And another way that you sometimes talk about this, what, what it means to increase functional organization is as expanding the boundary of what we consider an organism. Um, in, in your book that you wrote, that you mentioned this view of life, you write that evolution is both the solution and the problem. The harmony and order that we associate with the word organism indeed has a movable boundary that can be expanded to include biological ecosystems, human societies, and conceivably the entire earth. And earlier we spoke about that distinction between CAS one and two systems and the problem that the two systems composed of individuals following their respective strategies, um, evolutionary science has found that these do not naturally or inevitably evolve or self-organize into CAS one systems. And, and this problem is exactly what makes the scaling up of functional organization so important that that is how we get from two to one by expanding that boundary of what is understood as the relevant unit of selection, expanding the boundary of our system from composed of us individuals to components of a kind of singular unit. So I wanted to ask you specifically about what achieving higher levels of functional organization looks like in an economic context. What does it mean to expand the boundaries of what we take as, as organisms in, in terms of the economy? Is this a question of thinking about scaling up the, the, the kind of goal directedness of the economy? How do we think about this? Well, let me, uh, first of all, thank you for the question. I'm going to give quite a long-winded reply, but I think I'm going to arrive at where we want to. Um, That's good. We love those. Arrive at. And I'm going to start in biology. And I've always felt that, you know, in all of the dealings, I would, I'm, I'm almost always the only one who have had biological training. And, mm. and, uh, and I've always been thankful that. And one of the hardest lessons to learn about nature, biological nature, is that how often it is disharmonious. And natural systems are often, very often, in fact, most often CAS2 systems, not CAS1. The idea that nature left to itself becomes harmonious, that there's some kind of balance of, of, of nature, is actually fallacious. Most natural systems are like most laissez-faire economies. They're composed of species that are well adapted to survive and reproduce, often at cross purposes with um, each other. And so for a natural system to become to become like an organism, just as with a human system, requires this process of um, selection at the level of the whole of the whole system. And what we find is, and this is this is all since the 1970s, or very recent, at least by my by my lights, that the idea that, uh, well, it begins with the cell biologist Lynn Margulis, who proposed the theory that nucleated cells uh, evolved not by small mutational steps from bacterial cells, but as symbiotic communities of bacteria. So, so mm -hmm. basically, these were communities that, that were once more fractious, but they evolved to be so cooperative that now the, um, the, the, the group became a higher level organism. And then, and then that became generalized uh, to explain other what's called major evolutionary transitions, including the origin of life as groups of cooperative, cooperating molecular reactions. And so basically what, we, what this means is that everything we call an organism, such as a multicellular organism or a single cell, is in fact a highly cooperative group in which higher level selection triumphed over lower level selection. Mechanisms evolved to suppress disruptive competition within the group so that the group became the primary 
unit of, of selection. And so um, that's what's taking place in biology and what needs to take place in human social systems. It's here that I feel like introducing Eleanor Ostrom and the fact that we haven't yeah. yet, I think I'm, it must have been on your list. So why don't you why don't you set that up a little bit and then I can I think we can we can uh, introduce her because she's absolutely pivotal pivotal and yeah, then absolutely. and then we can continue with the story. Yeah, Eleanor Ostrom is such a great embodiment of everything that we've been talking about, right? Especially how letting theory go unempirically verified can become a straitjacket. Um, she was a political scientist by training. She won the Nobel Prize in economics for her work on how groups of people can successfully manage and maintain shared resources without markets or governments. Um, and the context for her work is this kind of long-standing idea in economics, which began as, as a hypothetical, purely theoretical thought experiment called the tragedy of the commons. And the basic idea is that if a community has free, unrestricted, you know, whether by government or private property, access to a shared resource, a commons, that in following their own self-interest, everyone will overuse the resource and ultimately deplete it. So the tragedy of the commons suggests that managing resources as a commons doesn't work because everyone is self-interested. And so it's a tragedy that we can't manage resources this way, but instead we'll carve everything up into private property and provision resources via markets so that the market system can properly manage them and they won't be depleted, right? There'll be an equilibrium struck. And what Eleanor Ostrom does is she decides to actually go into communities across the world that have resources that are managed as a commons and just to observe what happens. Do people actually overuse the resource and undermine its sustainability? Are markets actually these systems that can save us from ourselves and our self-interested nature? And what she learns is that there, there's no iron law one way or another. We aren't these inherently selfish creatures that will always overuse and deplete a resource at the expense of the community or collective ben benefit. But neither are we perfectly altruistic. What, what actually matters is how good our design principles are, how well organized we are in managing the commons. So she develops through observation, a set of core design principles. And these are things that you do a lot of work with in your paper, and you actually generalize them in a really fascinating way. So I'll let you bring those in. But what she finds is that if a community follows these principles, then they very successfully manage their commons resource and generate collective benefit in a sustainable fashion. So Ostrom did kind of economics in the way that we were talking about if economics were to follow the lead of evolutionary science in that she took one of these core theoretical assumptions, tested it against what actually happens on the ground. You know, she held kind of theory accountable to empirical reality and she found a significant dissonance between them. And it's in that dissonance that there's this great generative opportunity exactly. to develop something new, a richer understanding or strategy. And in her case, it was these design principles. Also, it should be noted that um, the guy who is credited with coining the idea, Tragedy of the Commons, his name was Garrett Hardin, and he actually later retracted his claim a bit in the face of empirical evidence. He said that you know he should have titled his paper "The Tragedy of the Unmanaged Commons," but of course that bit, you know, that correction uh, didn't make its way into the popularized narratives around how we manage resources, at least until Ostrom's work, if not more recently. Uh, but but anyway, relating back to your work, 
Ostrom's principles, even though they were designed or derived from small, particular communities, you've generalized them to help us think about how we can manage not only commons, but, but really any group, whether it's a local community or even a national economy. Yeah, thank you. I love the way you put it. And so, uh, you know, you understand it completely. And, um, and so uh, first, let me list these core design principles, and then I will relate them as I did with her, because I was lucky to collaborate with her for three years prior to her death, along with her associate, Michael Cox, with whom I still uh, work. So first, let me list these these principles, and then I will generalize them from a multi-level uh, mm-hmm. perspective. So the, the groups that worked, the groups that were could self-manage their resource, avoid the tragedy of overuse. Number one, had a strong sense of identity and purpose. They knew that they were a group, what they were supposed to do, what the resource was, who the membership was, and so on and so forth. So a strong sense of identity and purpose. Uh, number two, there was a, um, a matching of costs and benefits, not the case that some members of the group got the benefits and others did most of the work. It was it was calibrated so that what you get from the group is proportional to what you give. Number three, decision-making was fair and equitable, so not the case that some people were, made the decisions and other people were left uh, out. Uh, number four, um, behavior was monitored so that uh, agreed-upon behavior was... Uh, uh, you know whether you're doing what you're supposed to do or not. Uh, number five, graduated sanctions. If you're not doing what you should, then something needs to be done about it. But it can start out friendly, need not be harsh, but does need to escalate as necessary. Uh, six, fast and fair conflict uh, resolution. Conflicts will occur, and, and they must be resolved quickly, um, as quickly as possible, and in a way that's regarded as fair by all parties. Number seven, authority to self-govern. A group has to have elbow room in order to govern its own affairs. And number eight, appropriate relations among other uh, with other groups, which replicate the same principles. And so that's very important. I'm, I'm going fast, but it's, uh, it means that these principles are scale independent. Mm. They're needed to govern relations among groups in addition to relations within groups. And so the scale um, independence is just tremendously important. We could use these ideas to discuss the dynamics of a small group or nations in the global village. And so, and so that's just how general uh, they are. Now, I think when you, when you look at those against the background of multi-level selection theory, we can see that in a group that implements these core design principles strongly, you, it would be hard to play the single game of monopoly. Just try, <laughs> just try, you know, selfishly getting your way in a group, in a group like that. It's like, it's like an organism that's well protected against cancer. But in a group that doesn't implement these core design principles, and that's easy picking for disruptive self-serving behaviors. And so that's the mapping and the generalization of, um, of the core design principles. And so what we predicted and what is really can be confirmed to be true, there's really should be no doubt about this, is that this applies to all groups, all groups where people are trying to work together to get something done, which means all meaningful groups. doesn't matter what that thing is, any topic, mm. any topic. These core design principles are important because they basically, they concentrate selection at the between group level and they suppress, just like cancer suppression mechanisms, the potential for self-serving behaviors 
within groups. And it's armed with that, that we can begin now to actually, in a policy sense, we could work at all scales. And so I could then, what we do in the, in what will be part two of the, of the, um, of the trilogy, give example after examples, first at the scale of small groups, then at the scale of manufacturing using Toyota as an example, we can talk about uh, that, basically Toyota Lean uh, methodology, which is a process of selection and organization at, a, at the scale of a, you know, an automobile manufacturing plant. We can talk about the smart cities movement at a larger scale. We can talk about national forms of governance, uh, for everything from laissez-faire to socialism, and of course, the best are in between. And so um, uh, we can then apply these same principles uh, to, uh, and all of this is basically the process of converting CAS2 systems into CAS1 systems at these, uh, these different scales. And in each, each one of these, when we describe them, it's just like saying, yeah, it's more difficult when you go up in scale. Like a smart city is more difficult than a smart automobile assembly plant. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is, is similar in kind. What we have to do is similar. The blueprint is the is the uh, same. Yeah, and it's I, I know too that you've you've actually put this into practice. I was just listening to uh, you describe a project where you went into the school system in Binghamton, took kids who were struggling with school, applied Ostrom's these kind of generalized core design principles, and got really wonderful outcomes. And it, it's really it's really handy and useful that. These principles can apply at that scale. You may, you know, they can apply for a company like Toyota. They can apply for uh, the UN or how the US thinks about policy. So yeah, the, the scale independence of these principles is what, is what makes them kind of such a, a useful tool for thinking through policy. I thought that was a really nice, a really nice touch. Yeah, and the, I mean, the first time I applied this, as you said, was in a, a, the design of a school for at-risk youth. And we looks like we hit the jackpot the very first time. We built this school and put in the core design principles and the students responded not just within the first year, but within the first quarter of the first year. And now is that really bears examination. How, how did this work so quickly? Right. And the reason is, I think, I have a little article titled The Parable of the Turtle, in which we're all like turtles who can either pull into our shells in a dangerous situation or come out of our shells in a safe situation. And when you get... Um, I mean, a, an at-risk youth is basically a turtle that's been pulled into, spends most of his time in, inside his his uh, shell because it's such a harsh environment. But what the what what a group design with the core design principles does it, it basically it provides a safe and secure environment. If you if you enter a group that's governed by the core design principles, just you look around and you can see that it's safe to extend yourself. It's, you can exercise your pro-social nature. You can be, you can be nice. You could work hard, knowing that your effort will not be exploited. And it does not take long to make that assessment. And so, what happened was that these kids, who were led very, very hard lives, and we didn't have the way to change their lives other than the school environment. But when they entered that school environment, soon enough, they realized. I can come out of my shell. Hmm. And they did within the first quarter. That's what it means to change the social environment 
so that the expression of pro-social behaviors can take place. It's, it's very simple and it's very powerful. It's optimistic. In a world where so many people are giving up hope, um, there's such optimism in, in being able to say, we can create social environments that enable pro-sociality to thrive. And it can take place in any context, business, family, school, neighborhood, you name it. We can do it. One thing that I'd like to hone in on um, in the paper, you actually provide a, a new definition of an economics, and you make it explicitly about well-being as opposed to efficiency or growth. Um, you and Dennis, you wrote, we propose that economics be defined as the discipline that explores how resources, goods, and services can be mobilized in the pursuit of well-being in thriving societies now and in the future. And of course, well-being is something that is notoriously elusive to define if you really drill into it, um, and especially difficult to design for at a structural level, given how complex, multidimensional it is. And, and, and folks can have conflicting ideas about what the stuff of well-being is, or certainly how to how to achieve it. So I want to focus a little on how you work with the question of what well-being is within this framework, because you do give it a lot of attention. And I think coming from evolutionary science, you can bring a lot to this. And at heart, it seems like well-being in the multi-level paradigm is an irreducibly multifaceted thing, which is to say that you advocate for a, a dashboard approach as opposed to a single metric. Right. You, you guys wrote that uh, human well-being is a product of selection and replication in response to variation. Our well-being is multifaceted, covering material, agentic, and communitarian needs and purposes, and context-dependent so that the relative salience of our various individual and collective goals depends on our physical and social contexts. Consequently, it is not useful to integrate all components of well-being into a single metric, and progress should be assessed not just in terms of economic growth, but also in terms of meeting our needs for empowerment, social solidarity, and sustainability. So can you expand on this a bit from the view of evolutionary science what is well-being and what role can economics play in, in helping raise it? I mean, one point to make quickly is that there is sort of like Maslow's basic hierarchy of needs. We could say in general, we all want to be healthy. We all want to be well-fed. We all want to be free, free, free from violence and exploitation. Um, and so I think that there is some, some basics basically that are, that are universal. But beyond that, mm -hmm. Then, um, then it does bifurcate and it becomes much more uh, contextual. A part of this is that it must be participatory. You can't, you can't tell other people what their welfare is. They, they in mm. some respects, they need to tell you. And so participation at all levels. Uh, and this is actually a pretty big deal because, because uh, you know, in, in standard economics, equity is just not part of what's being Max, maximized here. and, right. and um, It's actually at odds with efficiency, right? They yeah, negative yeah efficiency and so on. But here, it's fundamentally democratic and, and equitable. And so that's really, really uh, encouraging. And so it will be multifactorial. It'll be very contextual. Uh, and we always have to be asking at any level, uh, what's best for us? But also, is that causing harm elsewhere in the system? And so we must be having some sense of systemic welfare, which coordinates what takes place at lower scales. And so I think that there is some level at which, like, and Dennis is doing this, and I think you are too, 
that when we go beyond just a single metrics, which um, economic metrics, maybe there's like four or 12 or mm-hmm. like the sustainability goals or like, you know, donut economics or you know, that's getting more and more into a dashboard approach. And I think that's still missing the contextual nature at some scale. You can't, there's, there'll be no single a dashboard. You're just going to have to see in a particular context, you know, what is it that we need to do? And then you need to just build build the the dashboard around that particular uh uh, context. And it sounds complicated. I suppose it is, but uh, it's the only way to proceed. And it's a more small world thing. We talked about small worlds with models. So this is a small world in, in the application is we need to just figure things out in a given, often quite particular context. So well-being, I really like this point you made about given how multidimensional and irreducible well-being is, we can't collapse it onto one thing um, that you have to make the process participatory, that you have to give people kind of on-ramps to participate in the process and, and, and deliberate over what it means and kind of the structural dimensions of how we build around it. I think that's really that's a really interesting way to frame it. And I, I want to move into another term you use a lot, um, managed cultural evolution. We've We've explored kind of how raising the functional organization of society can play this role in, in driving progress and, and well-being. And we've touched on how this doesn't happen naturally, that evolutionary science kind of contradicts the invisible hand thesis as actually we need an active hand. And this process of intentionally designing an economy so as to scale up the organization towards a CAS1 system, this is what you call managed cultural evolution. And I, I really want to get into some details of what this looks like in practice. We've touched on this with Ostrom's principles, with the school in Binghamton. But first, let's pause on, on this term and flesh it out a bit. You've spoken about managed cultural evolution as the middle way between a kind of pure laissez-faire economy on one hand and centrally planned economies on the other. We can think of the Adam Smith um, kind of utopia of, of a neoclassical economy. We can think of maybe Soviet Russia on the other hand. And I'd like to push a little deeper into that because if we look at the various economies today, or the discourse, let's take the US, how the US should be handled. Um, almost no one is actually advocating right, for either pure laissez-faire, pure central planning. Instead, the issue seems to be everyone is arguing for their own interpretation of uh, what managed cultural evolution should look like, what the common good that our system should serve is, and the policy infrastructure that might get us there. And I don't know, but I, I don't imagine that managed cultural evolution is such a wide umbrella that everything you know in between these two kind of ex- extremes uh, fits. So I, I wonder if there's any more definition we can give to what an evolutionarily informed process of managed cultural evolution in terms of economics, in terms of, of economic policy might call for. I had an opportunity to, to do some work with the uh, Marion Kaufman Foundation, which is um, one of the main foundations <laughs> interested in entrepreneurship, um, which we called Evolution, Complexity, and the Third Way of Entrepreneurship. And the mm. thesis of that, which you briefly alluded to, is that uh, there's two things that don't work and only one thing that does work. Uh, laissez-faire doesn't work. We've discussed that. Centralized planning doesn't work because the world is too complex to be comprehended by any group of experts. So if those don't work, what can work? Um, A managed process of cultural evolution where we have a systemic goal. uh, We we orient variation around that 
goal, that target of selection, and then we replicate best practices. That's a managed process of, of cultural evolution. And just let me unpack it a little bit. A Darwinian process is uh, any process that includes the three ingredients of variation, selection, and replication. <laughs> That's the Darwinian triad. And a, a, a managed process of cultural evolution, conscious cultural evolution, basically manages those three processes. It's, 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 it's conscious about the target of selection. What are we trying to accomplish? <laughs> it's conscious about orienting variation around the target. What are the different ways we might do to reach this goal? And it's conscious about replicating best practices because even when we when something works, <laughs> causing it to persist and to and to and to come into existence someplace else, that requires a lot of work. And so basically conscious evolution sounds abstract, but really it's being conscious about the three ingredients <laughs> of a Darwinian process, selection, variation and replication. So we go on to say, if that's the only thing that can work, it's the only thing that ever has worked. And so and so, if you actually look at examples of positive change, positive change in the past, in history, or in the present, you will find a managed process of cultural evolution. Maybe it wasn't described that way. Maybe the people didn't think about it that way, but that's what they did because it's the only thing that works. And so we then demonstrate that, basically illustrate that for governance at the national uh, level, a development effort, rural and inter international development efforts, the smart city movement, entrepreneurship done right, you name it. If it resulted in positive change, it was a pragmatic process of experimentation where people had, they had a goal, they pursued the goal, it was a managed process of cultural evolution even if the, uh, even if not using those those words, and then there's a tremendous added value in understanding what that is and being more explicit um, about it. So, to manage a process of cultural evolution, we need to intentionally orient variation around a, a particular consciously deliberated and chosen upon target, and then design an environment where whatever variations seem to work well can be selected and replicated upwards. But this is interesting because it kind of introduces uh, a problem, which is that as per your definition of economics, the target of evolution um, is stated as well-being now and in the future. But well-being is very ill-defined, right? It's a very kind of a nebulous target. It's situational, it's contextual, it's not one stable entity that can be abstracted out of situations and plugged into optimization equations and you know provide a clear guide of how to orient variation around it. I mean, again, I think that you could see much of the history of political economic discourse as the history of people arguing about how best to orient economic variation around well-being. So I'm really interested in how the position that you're beginning to describe with Dennis in the paper might not only help us kind of affirm our general commitment to orienting variation around a consciously chosen target, but also about being more concrete in this kind of particular moment and, and defining what the target is and how best to orient variation around it. And to my mind, your focus on Eleanor Ostrom's uh, core design principles is one strategy for doing this. And so I'm curious, 
how you see the relationship between her design principles and orienting the variation of an economy around targets of well-being. You know, are her principles kind of these more concrete strategies that have an inherent tendency to produce outcomes in line with this evolutionary vision, right? Is the the pragmatic action item of the multi-level paradigm to implement her principles at all scales? Well, actually not. I'm glad that you brought that up. It's a, a separate set of principles have to be brought into play. Uh, the Ostrom principles, basically, they, they make you well adapted to your current situation, but they don't necessarily make you flexible, mm. adaptable. And so the difference between being well adapted and being adaptable is a very important distinction. And, and I think, let me bring in Toyota here because it's such a great example. Cool. And it, it's an example that's well known to some and totally unknown to others. But basically, in a Toyota plant, in the old days, they had these ropes hanging down from the ceiling along the assembly line. And every time there was any kind of minor dysfunction, then the assembly line workers were instructed to pull the rope. It was called an andon. And that would then result in a swarm of activity to solve that problem. And then when they had what well, candidates, so there's your target of selection. Then, then you have a, um, uh, when you think you have a solution, they would implement that solution very cautiously and they'd monitor its effects on the system as a whole because in an assembly line, of course, if you change one little thing, that's going to cascade throughout the whole right. process. And so now they're asking, you know, is this actually, is this change going to result in a benefit to the whole system? Only then do you incorporate that change. And so I think you can see how marvelously that is a managed process of, of cultural evolution. Of course, the performance of the whole plant is is the target of uh, selection. Um, every problem results in a little bit of you know variation oriented around that. And then you replicate the best the best practice. And so that that's what makes um, a Toyota uh, plant an evolvable, a continuously improvement. They call it continuous improvement. Um, and that's what was so revolutionary um, and is well known in, in business circles with lean methodology and and um, and and um, and so forth. Now, now let me tell you a story about smart cities, if mm -hmm. I might, um, and something called three one one, which is a three digit telephone number that you can call not for an emergency. That's what nine one one is for, uh, but to report any minor dysfunction. And so you can see three one one is like an andon pull, right? Right. So isn't that amazing? Yeah. And it actually began as a cultural mutation in the city of Baltimore. Uh, they invented 311 to handle calls that were inappropriate for 911. And then soon enough, they realized that 311 was useful all by itself. And they described it as the eyes and ears of the city. And that's such a great metaphor because a smart city needs perceptual organs. And in this case, mm -hmm. we're building in um, uh, a way for any resident of the city to signal a dysfunction, much like an automobile assembly line worker. Although in this case, uh, as you might imagine, implementing 311 and getting people to use it, you can't instruct them to use it like you can if, if you're an assembly line <laughs> worker. You have to have other ways to do it. You have to make sure that it's unbiased. Um, so a lot of design has to go into implementing Three one one, but after you've done so, uh, you've turned the city. You've made the city a little smarter, 
Mm. Haven't you? And so, and so that's a great example of how the same principles can be operative at different scales for an automobile assembly plant or a city and, of course, the world. One of the primary kind of axes of differentiation between uh, various visions of the economy today that I see is the, the degree to which one thinks that public ownership uh, of anything really should be a part of the equation, right? We're, we're coming off of a paradigm over the last 40 years where the general rule was if you can privatize something, you do it. Um, the private sector is more efficient, more dynamic, more capable. Um, markets will be a more effective method of provisioning a resource or a service you know, than any public ownership or, or government involvement. And we're in a really interesting period where these assumptions are being reshuffled a little bit. Um, there's a lot more mainstream exploration of the role that the public sector can play in both provisioning goods and services, you know, whether we're talking about healthcare, education, housing, the internet, um, or even participating actively in shaping markets or in the investment process. You can have something like a social wealth fund, public investment banks, um, and, and these kind of public mechanisms that allow investment to follow perhaps a different set of incentives than markets, right? ones that maybe align with social welfare um, of a kind of system at the whole, but maybe don't have dazzling monetary returns. And, and you can go either way on this. And I'm curious um, if this is something you thought about, the relationship between public provisioning and ownership and managing cultural evolution. Do you see any role for the public sector in this process? Yeah, for sure. And it always has. I mean, you have great voices like Mariana Mazzucato mm, yeah. um, uh, talking about, I mean, it's a myth that the private sector does things better than the public sector. Every, every techno technological innovation, she would say, originated from a government program such as the military or the space program or, or mm -hmm. so on. And then all of the tech companies that, uh, you know, they were massively subsidized by the government remain so mm -hmm. to this day. And so I think that um, we, have to, we have to just um, uh, become clear about that from the very beginning but, uh, but, um, and, uh, and dispel some of these um, myths that are very individualistic and attribute far too much to the individual. Uh, mm -hmm. and, so, and the best examples of, of governance at a national scale are the social democracies, for example, the Nordic countries, which are basically top, yeah. top the charts and, and everything. Um, and there what you find is you find a, a strong collaborative relationship between the major sectors of society. That would be the state, labor, and business. All strong, all strong, right. and, and, and work together in a collaborative uh, uh, spirit. A, a specific example of that is called flex security, which I think developed in Denmark, but it's also practiced in Norway and and um, and elsewhere. And what that means is that the market. I mean, the, the the market has to be agile, especially if you're a small country like Norway or Denmark. You really have to be responsive to the international uh, market. And so that means you have to you have to be able to fire and hire people at short. Uh, mm -hmm. at short notice. And so how can that be acceptable to labor, to the labor unions? And the answer is by having a really strong social security yeah. system so that if you do get fired, and then you're on welfare, but welfare is like 90% of your total income for a period of two to four years. And that gives you time to retrain and so on and, and so forth. So there's flex security. Uh, mm -hmm. Business can be agile and it's still secure for the 
workers. And, that, and people had to have the whole system in mind in order to put that together, just like 311 or, or the um, Andons. To, to add to that, um, it should be noted that Adam Smith himself, the way that he defined uh, perfect liberty was actually exactly this, that workers, and on both ends, workers and, and employers, but workers should be free to uh, leave employment as often as they like in search of, of, of a better fit. And conversely, that you know, companies should be able to um, fire to, to whatever degree that, that they deem necessary in search of a better fit. And the way that you make that possible, I mean, right now, uh, a, a large chunk of the economy can't just quit their job if they don't like it, right? The, the, so the safety net does not permit them that kind of safety. So it's a really interesting kind of symbiotic relationship. Adam Smith was so much more nuanced than the metaphor mm-hmm. in the invisible hand. He he invoked that metaphor three times in the entire corpus of his work. And so to, to associate Adam Smith with this uh, invisible hand metaphor is such a gross oversimplification that um, you've really got to become more sophisticated than, uh, than that. But, uh, but one point to make is the need for entrepreneurship uh, and the need for um, it's not as if competition is a bad thing. Uh, competition is required for some practices to replace others. And so we need competition with a vengeance. We need rapid social change. And that means some things outcompeting other things. And so it's basically the selection criteria that is, is what we have to work on. And it's here where commons arrangements is uh, are really there's a resurgence. Basically, the shareholder value model and profit uh, motivation, such as an advertising model, is just it's going to fundamentally it's not going to be for the common uh, for the common good. And so, yeah. commons oriented commoning of various sorts of many sorts is, I think, really proving to be the wave of the future. Yeah, I've been I've actually been doing a lot of reading recently in there in the past maybe 15 years there's been a lot of work in the theory of kind of delineating what kinds of resources are best managed via market mechanisms, what are best managed as commons and so on. There's a lot of really interesting work here. Um actually hoping to dig into that in future episodes. Good. But I'd like to move in a little different direction. Uh at at the beginning of our conversation, I asked you, you know, from your point of view, what is the point of the economy? What is it for? What does economic progress look like if not just higher GDP charts? And I think that one way to see your work in regards to economics is to to understand the economy as a system that offers us incredible leverage in playing a role in our own evolution, right? That through designing our economic environments, we can orient variation around particular targets as we've been talking about, and we can structure our social and cultural world in a way that biases outcomes towards pro-social cooperation um, in the same way that changing the rules and, and structure of a game of monopoly can change whether it makes sense for people to be primarily competitive or cooperative. We can make those same kinds of economic interventions that make cooperation reasonable. And in doing so, we can increase that functional organization of the economy, the, the boundary of the organism. And one of the things that I, I love about your work is that you aren't scared to call this project spiritual, right? In, in one of your recent books, This View of Life, you explicitly frame it as a follow-up to Teilhard de Chardin's book, The Phenomena of Man, where what he describes as the, the progressive evolution of consciousness, I think has a lot of resonance actually with what you're talking about, with, with raising levels of functional organization. 
Yeah, and it was Te- and it was Tehard who said consciousness is evolution reflecting upon itself. He was he. I mean, he made so many inscrutable uh, remarks, but that one, you know, consciousness is evolution reflecting upon itself, is uh, you know really provocative and and is as a very large grain of truth. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Consciousness is evolution reflecting on itself. And so there's also uh, there's a quote from your book that I wanted to bring in here where you write, our journey ends with a reflection on how the secular imagination and the religious spiritual imagination can converge on the conscious evolution of our collective future. It is striking how these two imaginations often seem at odds with each other, yet both arrive at the same conclusion, that the concept of organism has a movable boundary which must be expanded to solve the problems of our age. And one of the reasons that I love this kind of consilience between science and spirituality is because so much of the the past few hundred years have seemed as as if a a progressive privatization of questions that venture into the spiritual, right? Where each individual has gained the freedom to have their own conception of whatever spirituality means to them. But in the process, the social organism, the social structures that we create for ourselves have been drained of that sort of, of vision and inquiry and deliberation, And it seems to me like one feature of your work is really to provide a foundation to reintroduce questions that are rooted in these broader ideas of spirituality, in teleology, in purpose, um, even questions about the direction of evolution back into the collective social discourse. Is Is that a fair read? Yeah, well, in the first place, thank you. And in the second place, to say just a little bit about spirituality, I think that that when we think about of society as an organism, we really can explain what we mean by spirituality as, as the psychology of, uh, of the individual embedded within a highly cooperative group. And it's there where spirituality can become joined with economics, something which is, would be, wouldn't that be something? Is that, you know, I mean, with economics, without being spiritual about it, we're out trying to create some kind of system that benefits society. So, uh, but to actually to see that the spiritual impulse is going in the same direction. And so one of my goals, it's a personal goal and a, and a societal goal, is that we could really, be, we could really bring uh, spirituality together with science and economics and, and everything else would be to have more consilience across those different domains of, um, of thought. I think that's part of, part of what we're um, reaching for. Yeah. I think that that's uh, a perfect place to draw this down to a close. Is there is there anything still lingering for you, or did we drain the tank? Nope, nope. I think that's great, and thank you once again for being so uh, so well informed, basically. And I'm I'm very very happy that our our that long paper um, with Dennis, uh, the first of three, uh, really uh, found its mark with you, and that you've really absorbed it beautifully. And um, and um, and uh, we can now uh, pass that on to our to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And and for folks listening, uh, parts two and three are forthcoming. I'll link uh, part one in the show notes. I cannot recommend it enough. David, thanks so much for the time. Good, thank you. All right, that'll do it. Uh, links to David and Dennis's paper and a selection of David's other work are available on the show page. 
You can find that at musingmind.org slash podcast and click on David's episode. If you listen to the previous episode with the biologist Michael Levin, you might have noticed that there's a ton of resonance between what David spoke about today in terms of scaling up the functional organization of a system or the boundary of what counts as an organism and Michael's work on quite literally how at the cellular level, smaller systems scale up into larger systems. So I'm, I think I'm going to put together a kind of crossover episode where I'll splice in segments from both interviews to, to show kind of where and how they resonate and how when they, when they hang together, uh, they really build on each other to tackle larger and larger questions. Uh, when that comes out, it'll be available to Patreon supporters along with a few other patron-only episodes. And with that, I thank you for listening and I'll talk to you next time. 